0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Yesterday I was sitting at a coffee shop uh, up north of the Heights working, uh, kind of finishing up this sermon, and I overheard a conversation Uh, a couple tables over from me. uh, There were two women sitting there talking to each other, and one was telling the story um, of her little sister. Um, they, they sound like Christians, and one was telling the story of her little sister's faith journey, um, and it was a sad story. Um, her little sister, uh, she, she was describing it, um, her little sister grew up loving church. She loved Sundays, she loved singing in the choir, she loved going to youth group. Uh, but then in about middle school, she started asking questions, um, and as I heard this, her telling this story, she said, you know, my parents were strict, um, and they really just kind of demanded that she believe, um, and they, they said to her, um, I typed this out, if she wasn't sure, her parents said to this this little girl, if she wasn't sure about the things that she was asking, then she probably isn't a Christian. Um, if she wasn't sure about the things she was asking, then she probably wasn't a Christian. Uh, in high school, she became agnostic. Um, she, she kept telling the story. She became agnostic, not sure what she believed, and now she's in college. Um, wants nothing to do with the church or with Christianity. has totally left. Christianity, and it's sad because as I was hearing this story, I thought, man, uh, that's not the Christianity that I know. Uh, that's, that's not the Jesus uh, that I know, and my mind went immediately to, of course, I was preaching on this today, uh, so yesterday, my mind went immediately to this text, and I think that gets at kind of the question uh, that is beneath uh, this text because I've heard so many stories like that, and I think this story of, of particularly the interaction between Peter and Jesus Um, is really illuminating. The question is this, what role role does doubt play in our lives? What role does doubt play in our lives? Is doubt always bad? Um, What role does it play in our lives? I think that understanding doubt and its place in our lives is vital for us because uh, I think if we're honest, all of life is a constant back and forth between certainty and doubt about just about everything. Um, Certainty uh, is best defined as perfect knowledge that has total security from error. That's what certainty is. Certainty is perfect knowledge that has total security from error. It's the state of being totally without doubt. Doubt is anything other than certainty, right? Um, And so many people, uh, myself included, uh, if I'm honest with myself, so many people are on a quest for certainty. But when you hear that definition, is it even possible to have certainty? To have perfect knowledge with total security from error? I'll go ahead and give my answer. Um, I think the answer is no. Um, I think that we can't truly have perfect knowledge with security from doubt. Uh, And I think we all know this. In fact, I think it's written into the fabric of our society. If you think about it, um, when you accuse someone of a crime, and you try to put them behind bars, what do you need to do? Do you need to prove with certainty that they committed the crime? No, that's not the phrase. Uh, You need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they committed a crime. Right? You don't have to prove that it's certain. If you if you had to, then no one would go to jail because you can't go back in time. We don't have time machines. There's lots more examples. The phrase margin of error. Right? Scientific facts are only declared to be true within a certain margin of error. This is true of economics. It's true of statistics. You guys, I'm looking around this room. Many of you are probably familiar with that phrase. We could talk. I mean, we could talk about the brakes on your car. Whether you're absolutely certain that when you step on the brakes, your car will stop. We could talk about real news versus fake news. Once you've distinguished between real news and fake news, is the real news really real? Are you certain? Um, we could, I love talking about this. There's a lot that we could say about that, but I'll just say this. Certainty is elusive. The modern world knows this to be true, um, and, and long before the modern world knew this to be true, God knew this to be true of us. Is there a place for doubt in our lives? The answer is absolutely yes. Uh, Even for the Christian, is there a place for doubt in the Christian life of faith? Absolutely. Yes, God embodies certainty with a capital C. God is, according to the Bible, the definition of certainty. And for the Christian, salvation is secure and certain, according to the Bible. Salvation is secure and certain in an objective sense. But when we are saved, we are still finite, which means that our knowledge is incomplete. And we are still sinners, which means that the knowledge that we do have is still imperfect. Because of this, certainty remains elusive. The thing is, though, God does not promise intellectual certainty, and nor does he require it of us. What he promises us is something much better, and I think that's what our text tells us today. And so my plan for this morning is to to uh, trace briefly through the the narrative, um, and then we'll, we'll draw out a couple of points of application So let's begin, Matthew 14, verse 22. To give a little bit of narrative context, actually, jump back. To give a little bit of narrative context, Jesus is in the middle of his earthly ministry. For the three years before his death, Jesus was engaged in what was called his his ministry, his years of ministry, uh, and we're smack dab in the middle of it. He spent his time gathering disciples and teaching his followers about the kingdom of God, about who he was, about the nature of God's plan of salvation. That's what he spent the three years before he died doing. And everything that he did was intentional and purposeful. He performed a lot of miracles. Up to this point in the text, he's performed a lot of miracles already. And none of his miracles were just kind of miracle muscle flexes, right? They all, were point, they, they all had a point. They all had a, a clear purpose. Jesus was teaching about himself and about God's plan uh, for our lives. And so in this story, uh, we begin in verse 22. He's been teaching these key lessons, and here we are at this story. Immediately, verse 22, he made the disciples get into the boat, and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Um, Very briefly, you'll notice it starts in a little bit of a hurry. Jesus immediately sends his disciples away. Just before this, Jesus had performed the miracle of feeding 5,000 people. Um, He had been teaching on a mountainside. These thousands of people had come out of the city a long way to hear him preach. Uh, And then they looked around as the day was kind of drawing to an end. And they looked and said, oh, none of us brought any food. Um, So they look around. They gather five loaves of bread and two fish. Uh, Jesus brings them, and he says, distribute this, and miraculously, he feeds 5,000 people. Um, And it's beautiful. He gives John 6. I actually preached a sermon about a year ago here on John chapter 6, the speech that Jesus gives when he performs this miracle. He says, I am. I'm giving you this food, and I want you to know that I am the bread of life. Once you've eaten of this bread, you will never hunger again. Jesus didn't just perform that miracle to show that he was cool and powerful. He performed it to show them that he was all that his followers needed. And as a result of that, the crowd grabbed him, tried to make him king. That wasn't in Jesus' plan, and so he kind of hurries his disciples away, and he withdraws by himself to a mountain, and that's what, kind of, that's what brings us to where we are. Um, so he's withdrawn uh, from this crowd to pray. Um, after he dismissed the crowds, verse 23, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time, the boat with his disciples, was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Um, and the language that's used here, so his disciples have, have left in a boat. The language, um, very briefly, um, gives us spiritual overtones, right? The wind, uh, the, the, they were beaten by the waves. The word that's used conveys a sense of torment, not just it was a bad storm, but they were being tormented by the waves. And the wind wasn't just bad, the wind was against them. And so the disciples, in, in verse 25, it goes on, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. In the Roman system, the night, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., was divided into four watches, four three-hour watches. This means that between 3 and 6 in the morning, the disciples left before sundown. So they'd been going against this storm for hours and hours, and their fear, their, their, their uncertainty had been growing and growing. And so when Jesus walks out with all of these spiritual overtones, what do they do? Jesus approaches, um, verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Right? So, with these spiritual overtones, Jesus approaches. They immediately think it's a ghost, um, but then Jesus speaks out immediately. He doesn't let suspense build, right? He doesn't test his disciples, right? Immediately, that word appears a couple of times in this passage. Immediately, uh, he said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And not just, It is I. Um, Jesus literally says, Take heart, I am. Take heart, ego me. This is the phrase, to give a little bit of context, we've been talking about this probably throughout the book of Matthew. Matthew is a Jewish uh, disciple, Jewish follower of Jesus. Um, And he's writing to predominantly a Jewish audience to point to the Jews that Jesus is the sent Messiah of God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews. Um, And there's a story in in, uh, Exodus chapter 3 about Moses, how God approaches Moses in a burning bush. He appears to Moses in a burning bush, and he speaks to him saying, Moses, I'm going to raise you up, and you're going to deliver my people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, And Moses asks God this question, asks God through the burning bush this question. He says, okay, you're going to raise me up and and deliver these people from slavery. If they ask me who sent me, what should I tell them? So Moses asks God, if they asked me who you are, how do I answer? And God's response, Exodus 3.14 to Moses is, I am who I am. God's name is I am often referred to as the great I am. And so when Jesus says here, literally, take heart, I am, do not be afraid, he is making a bold and beautiful claim that would have been noticeable to the disciples, would have been noticeable to his readers. It's, it's huge. And even though Jesus had, had, had shown power over the storm a few chapters ago, right, so this is not the first time Jesus interacts with the storm with his disciples. Matthew chapter 8, there's another miracle um, of Jesus in, with his disciples in a boat. The storm kicks up, and Jesus falls asleep in the bottom of the boat. Um, and his disciples wake him up, saying, Lord, Lord, we are perishing. Are you just going to do nothing? And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. Again, same, same phrase that appears. Oh, you of little faith. Why are you doubting? Then um, he rebukes the storm, calms the storm. So Jesus has, has taught them this already. He's taught them, I am in control. Right? Even when things look like they're getting out of hand, I am in control. And here, again, um, Even though he already taught them this, he says, take heart, I am with you. Be not afraid. Even though he's already taught this, he's patiently teaching them again. Uh, But this story doesn't stop there. Peter's plea uh, in verse 28 keeps the story going. Let me read to the end, and then we'll talk about it for a minute. Verse 28, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus said, Come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. We're going to spend most of the rest of our time talking about this second part of the story. Um, Peter is the most outspoken of Jesus' disciples in this story and in the rest of the, the New Testament teachings about the life of Jesus. Um, and some call Peter the impetuous disciple, right? that Peter's an example of who not to follow. They kind of bash Peter. I don't think that those are actual, actually fair to, uh, characterizations of Peter in general. And I certainly think that in this text, that's not what Matthew intends to communicate. That's not what Jesus would have us take away from this. What we see here is an intimate, loving interaction between Jesus and his close friend Peter and it happens because of Peter's personality, because of his boldness of asking God to give him a command to walk on the water. Peter responds, Lord, if it's you, come at, command me to come to you on the water. And this is a place where the translation is a bit of a struggle. It literally reads, uh, if it is you, make me to come to you. Um, but this, is not, uh, this does not connote testing. Peter's not like the kids saying, oh, you think you're faster than me? Prove it. You know, Jesus doesn't hear Or Peter doesn't hear Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, prove that you're actually Jesus. That's not what Peter's saying here. To borrow from one commentator, what Peter said might be better captured by the words, since it is you, please enable me to do the same thing that you're doing. So Peter's words here are really a vote of confidence in Jesus. Lord, since you did this, you can also make me to do this. Command me to do what you're doing, walking on the water. So Jesus does. He says in verse 29, come and incredibly, The rest of verse 29, Peter steps out of the boat, walks on the water, uh, and comes to Jesus. By this point, Peter had been with Jesus long enough to know that Jesus' commands are often our uplifting grace, not just forbidding stifling law. And so he asks, he's eager for for Jesus to command him to do something. And sure enough, Jesus commands him and empowers him to do exactly what he commanded. Peter walks on water, arriving at Jesus' side, but then real life happened, real life happened. Uh, happened. The wind blew, uh, Peter's hair just kind of probably got in his eye, and he was re- remembered that he was in the middle of this storm. And so he turned away from Jesus to look at the wind. And in verse 30, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And here's the thing, what, what did he do? When The moment he realized he was afraid, what did he do? He cried out to the Lord. Not, oh Lord, if you can, please. He said, Lord, save me. He knows Jesus, and he knows what Jesus can do. He had gotten distracted, and what does Peter do? Or what does Jesus do? Does he yell at Peter? Uh, does he test Peter's faith, uh, the strength of his faith? No. Immediately, he saves him. Verse thirty-one: Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, "O you of little faith, why did you doubt?" And then the story ends. Verses thirty-two through thirty-three: The storm is calmed. There's this beautiful doxology, this picture of of worship. The people in the boat, after seeing all that they'd seen. They worship uh, Jesus and say, truly, you are the son of God. Again, Matthew including the official Jewish title for who Jesus was, the son of God. And so that's the story. Um, And what I want to do is make a few key observations, uh, make a few key points, pull out a a couple of key things that I think tie this story to the rest of the Bible, really tie this story to the the story of the gospel, because I really do think this is one of those fundamental texts that really gets at what it means to be Christian, what it means to have faith. Um, So there's four main points. Um, The first is the longest, uh, and then the rest kind of flow from the first. Well, let me make these, let me pull these things out. First, we see in this story that Jesus offers us a relationship, and he shows us what that relationship can look like. Remember, everything that Jesus does is purposeful. When he calms a storm, back in Matthew chapter 8, he does it to show, I am in control. Even when things look crazy, I'm in control. He fed the 5,000 to say, I am all that you need. Once you've eaten of this bread, you will never hunger again. And here, Jesus is teaching us uh, not just that he can walk on water, but he's teaching us about the nature of our faith, the nature of our relationship with him. He addresses really, yeah, the nature of faith itself. When Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. When Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He's getting at the heart of what it means to have faith. And so what is faith? How would you answer that question? What is faith? It's something we talk about a lot. Uh, But how would you answer that? What is faith? I think simply put, simply put, faith is a relationship of trust. Uh, Faith is a relationship of trust. If if I have faith in my wife, that means that we are in a relationship and I trust her. If I have faith in my brother, or in my friend, it's because we have a relationship of trust. If I have faith in God, that means I have a relationship with God and I trust him. At the heart of Christianity, Jesus, by his grace, offers us salvation by faith. And what is the nature of that salvation? What does that actually mean to be saved? It means that we have been invited into a relationship with God. Because it's a relationship, it's not stagnant. It grows by God's grace through God's actions and through our actions. As we see in this story with Jesus and Peter, like any relationship also, as we see in this story, Um, it requires three central things. Uh, Proximity, intimacy, and singularity of focus. And I want to talk about each of these briefly. First, relationships require proximity. Uh, When his disciples are in the middle of a storm and they are fearful, what does Jesus do? Um, He walks on water to draw near to them. When Peter shouts out in fear, where is Jesus? He is right next to him. He is close to him able to reach out and grab him. Every close relationship requires proximity. We know this. That's why we call long-distance relationships long-distance relationships, right? because they're long distance, um, and they're hard. Relationships can grow over long distances, um, but marriages don't happen through the mail, right? Even in cultures where marriages are arranged such that the husband and wife don't meet until their wedding day, they have to actually meet face-to-face, exchange vows, and consummate their marriage. Right? true intimate relationship requires proximity. We see this, uh, and then the next thing uh, is intimacy. A true committed relationship requires intimacy. We see this in the story. When Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus' presence, right, his proximity to them is supposed to do something, right? He's not with them just for togetherness' sake. Because I am with you, take heart, live with courage, find joy in trusting me. Also, when when Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter was right next to Jesus, but but he had lost a sense of intimacy. And so Jesus says, bring your eyes back to me, Peter, and know me. Even as you battle through storms, keep your eyes on me, knowing that I am all and I am in all. Uh, And we know this. A healthy marriage involves more than simply sharing a home and sharing a bed. A healthy marriage requires depth of intimacy, mutual enjoyment, engagement, We've probably all heard of marriages that don't look like that, um, where husband and wife start to feel more like roommates than spouses. Um, that might describe your marriage right now. But Jesus' words to those marriages are the same as his words to Peter here. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, because of his kind of, because of this decreased level of intimacy, Jesus doesn't look at Peter and say, well then, I guess this isn't going to work out. Jesus reaches out and says, look at me. I'm still here. Why did you doubt? I'm not going to throw you out. I'm going to help you grow. Just like lack of intimacy doesn't nullify a marriage, lack of intimacy doesn't nullify our relationship with God. Thank God that that is true and that there is always hope. Always hope for both. Look at God. Look at your spouse and draw near. Relationships can grow. Intimacy can grow. Committed covenant relationship requires not just proximity, but intimacy. And not just those two things, but last, they require singularity of focus. For Peter, Jesus was right there, proximate, close to him. Right? Also, up until the moment where he doubted, Peter had great confidence and faith in Jesus as Lord as he walked across the water. Think about the moment. Right? When he asked Jesus to command him to come, Peter had to step out of the boat and step onto the water, right? He was locked in with Jesus, intimately in relationship with Jesus. Jesus was empowering him to do this. And then what happened? He turned. He looked at the wind. He immediately thought, How am I going to do this alone? I can't. And he began to sink. His focus shifted, and the relationship suffered immediately. And this one's easy for us to wrap our minds around. Uh, you can be the most devoted husband. You can probably see where I'm going with this. Right? You can be the most devoted husband. You can be close to your wife, you can enjoy great intimacy with your wife in your marriage bed, in your emotional relationship, and all that you do together, but if your eyes are drawn to other women, what happens? Right, if your focus shifts to another woman, even for a moment, this is a huge deal. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, if you even lust after another woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. Because shifting focus breaks the relationship. Relationships require proximity, intimacy, and singularity of focus, and when God gives us faith, when God invites us into a relationship with Him, He invites us into all three of those things, saying that those three things are true from Him to us, and inviting us to make those three things true between us and Him. In fact, from the beginning, we see that all of these things have been important to God all along. Right before the foundations of the world, God uh, before the foundations of the world, God existed eternally, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect community in proximity, in intimacy, in singularity of focus with one another. And when he created all things, he created his creatures. He created humanity to be an extension of this loving relationship. Right. Um, he wanted proximity. He wanted, to be in the, uh, he wanted his creatures to be in his presence, and so he placed them in the Garden of Eden. God created the Garden of Eden to put Adam and Eve so that he could walk with them and they could walk with him. That's what the Garden of Eden was for. He also wanted intimacy. He didn't want to be just together in the garden with them for closeness sake. He wanted to to enjoy them and he wanted them to enjoy him. He created them to enjoy each other and Adam and Eve to enjoy each other and to enjoy enjoy him. And he also wanted singularity of focus. For Adam, keeping his eyes on God was not a struggle. Adam wasn't constantly looking at God, looking back at things like we struggle with today. Um, When he was talking with God, he was enjoying God. Right? But because God was also in every aspect of creation, when Adam was tending his flocks, he was tending to his relationship with God. When Adam was tending his garden, he was tending to his relationship with God. All creation sings the praises of its creator, and Adam enjoyed this perfect harmony in all of its fullness. But in the fall, each of these aspects of the relationship broke. Right? Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree, and what's the first thing that happened? Right when they ate the fruit, what did they do? We're naked. They immediately focused on themselves. In that moment, human minds, right? Human freedom broke. Ever since then, the focus of each human life has been hardwired to be focused on one thing ourselves. What do I want? Right? It's about me. What do I want? How am I going to do this? And as a result of that, intimacy was ruined. They could no longer live for the sake of God because they were living for themselves. Proximity was ruined. God had to cast them out of his presence. He cast them out of the Garden of Eden, making even the hope of future intimacy impossible. But God was going to fix this. For thousands of years, God made it clear that his plan was to draw near to his people once again. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Right? He then gave his people the tabernacle, this tent where his presence dwelled, um, so that the people could draw near to him. This, this tabernacle eventually became the temple, this physical structure where God's people could come and draw near to God in worship. Right? And, this, and God's plan of salvation was for the purpose of intimacy, not just to be saved from hell, right? but God kept saying, I want you to be my people, and I will be your God. We will be back in close relationship once again. And God would make singularity of focus possible once again. He would write the law, not just in a book, so that you'd have to keep looking from the book back to your life, seeing if they measure up, but he would write the law where? In our hearts, so that we could truly enjoy life as it was meant to be enjoyed, with singularity focus. And in Jesus, this whole plan of redemption came to fruition. Jesus came to live with us. He was born man to draw near to us. And because of his love, he gave his life for us to pay for our sins so that we could draw near to God in a way that was uh, was holy and acceptable. That uh, is Jesus' offer to us. It's been God's plan all along. Because of Jesus, the repaired relationship with God is available. He makes it available to us by grace through faith. The second thing I want to pull out, though, um, is that in this particular story, we learn something important about ourselves, too. Um, We learn something important about humanity. We are easily distracted and incapacitated by our doubts. As we look at Peter's relationship with Jesus, or as we look at the many lessons he learned from Jesus, as Jesus patiently cared for him, patiently poured his life into Peter, we see that even Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, didn't understand these things fully. Right, Peter had every reason to be confident in Jesus, and he was. But he wasn't impervious to the storms that would come his way. If you think about it, Peter was doing great. Like I said, right, his eyes were fixed on Jesus. He trusted that Jesus was Lord, that, that Jesus would empower him to do miraculous things. And so he walked on water, but then the wind blew. And all it took was a gust of wind. And when it happened, Peter saw the wind, and he was afraid. He didn't begin to doubt that Jesus existed. Right? He didn't begin to doubt that Jesus could save him. He wasn't thinking about Jesus at all. Right? I went to, on Friday night this week, I went to my first horse race. If you guys ever remember the horse track at 249 in the Beltway up north, um, still work, you know, working on how I feel about it, but uh, loved it. It was, it was fun, I'll say that. Um, but it, they did this thing before every race. They blew the horn and paraded the horses out in front of the track, in front of the grandstand, I think grandstand. Okay, we'll call it a grandstand. They parade the horse in front of everyone um, so that you could look in the eyes of the horses that you just placed a bet on um, and decide whether you placed a good bet or not. Is this what is this what Peter was doing? Did Peter see the wind and then step back and look at the wind and Jesus and start to regret, I don't know, I don't think this horse is going to win? No. That's not what was happening. Jesus Peter wasn't doubting whether Jesus was strong enough. His, it wasn't that Peter was thinking wrongly of Jesus. It was that Peter wasn't even thinking about Jesus. Right? His eyes were drawn away from Jesus, which caused him to doubt. He, it was just him in the storm. Jesus was not even in the picture anymore, and he began to sink. This happened with Peter, it? And, it, and, it, and it happens with us. Right? If you're not a Christian, then all of life is a storm. Right? Life is one big storm, but you can do it. right? You've got a great boat. Um, you're a great sailor. Uh, The storm will probably pass soon, but if it doesn't, that's fine, uh, because you know what you're doing. The message of the Bible is clear, though. Um, You don't really know what you're doing. This storm will kill you. Uh, It will not end well. But the good news of Jesus is that Jesus is Lord over all things, and he offers to you to be the Lord even over the storms of your life. He paid for your sins so that he could invite you back into a relationship of trust, extending his hand to you, saying, Come, be not afraid. I'm with you. It's important, though, that we remember that this invitation is not into a life without storms, at least not yet. Right? These were not, uh, in this story, these were not some strangers in the boat that Jesus came to. They were his disciples. Right? Peter was not an outsider. Peter was one of, close, one of Jesus' closest friends, and it was Peter who had his eyes drawn away from Jesus, experiencing doubt and beginning to sink. Christian, there will be storms that come up in our lives, Right. Whether these storms happen to be terrible things or great things or just ordinary things, there are things that come our way that will tempt us to draw our eyes away from Jesus and hunker down, relying on our own strength, relying on our own understanding. You probably know what I'm talking about. Um, it could be an experience of suffering. It could be uh, witnessing someone go through a very painful experience of suffering. Um, it could be something great. It could be a season of celebration where you're surrounded by people who, who are Christian and people who aren't Christian, and you start to realize, it seems like the people who aren't Christian are just as happy as I am. So does Christianity really offer me anything? Do I really need it? It could be something new that you learn about God that scares you or that you don't like, or some theologian asks a question that sends you on this spiral of doubt and and, and just kind of wondering whether anything makes sense anymore. I give those examples because those are things that I've actually been through, each of them, and those are things that I still go through. Peter, the beloved disciple, struggled, and we know as we read on in the Bible that this isn't the end of Peter's struggle. It's not that Jesus teaches this and Peter says, "Mm, got it. No, the rest of it, he continues to struggle. The rest of his disciples continue to struggle. And why? Because of our hardwired self-centeredness. Even when we are welcomed into a relationship with God, we still struggle against our sin, and we still face temptations to trust in ourselves rather than in God. And while we have been given a fighting chance against these temptations, we've been given a new heart, we've been made new creations, Um, which means that we are now free to choose God or choose our sin, right? Even though we've been given a fighting chance, we are still easily distracted by the storms of our lives, and so we fall into doubt sometimes the point where we start to, to sink. We're easily distracted and incapacitated by our doubts. But to make a third observation, right, while these storms will inevitably come up in our lives, drawing our eyes from Jesus, he continues to offer us grace, patiently helping us and being with us as we go through our lives. Salvation is not grace and then law. Salvation is grace and then grace and then grace and then grace. You might have been told otherwise. Um, you might, have, might not actually say it that way, but you might have begun to think otherwise. Um, that if you begin to doubt that you should repent, right, that if you doubt then you're not worthy of Jesus, that you might not actually be a Christian. Um, and if that's your picture of God, that God's grace is tough love as he waits for us to just get it, then you probably read verse 31 in our text accordingly. You probably read it as though it says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and grabbed Peter, sternly scolding him as he said, "Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's probably how you read it, but that's not it. That's not the patient love and grace that Jesus has for his children. Of course, Jesus does correct Peter. Jesus is not afraid to call people out for sin, and he's not afraid to say when someone is not worthy to be his disciple. But what's noticeably absent in this story is either of those things, right? Jesus does not call Peter to repentance. He doesn't accuse Peter of sin. He doesn't warn Peter that this behavior proves him unworthy to be a disciple. No, he responds to Peter's doubt first by saving Peter, And only then does he say, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? There's a hint of rebuke, but listen, not all rebuke is stern and angry. This rebuke comes in the form of a reminder. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Did you forget who I am? Did you forget that I am? That I am all and I am in all? The reality is that Peter did. He did forget, even if just for a moment. But even in his moment of forgetfulness, what happened? He cried out to the Lord and immediately, Jesus reached out and extended grace. Jesus is not the parent saying, well, then you must not be a Christian. Jesus is the gracious Lord showing Peter and showing us what true love and grace in a relationship look like. And in this, right, in this, as we see Jesus' relationship develop with Peter here and throughout the New Testament, we get a window into God's design for how he reestablishes our relationship with him. Jesus doesn't just fix us all of a sudden and then leave us on our own. Jesus doesn't take a wrench to our hearts and then walk away. He invites us into a relationship. He redeems us, not just fixing us, while there is absolutely fixing that happens. He redeems us, and in so doing, he gives us a fighting chance for fighting our sin and temptation, for growing in a relationship with him, and he remains with us over time, growing this relationship with us. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians to correct them because they had gotten this wrong. The Galatian church, uh, this is decades after Jesus' ministry, they thought that God had just fixed them and then left the the rest up to them. And so Paul writes to the Galatians, Oh foolish Galatians, Right? are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? They they missed it. No, Paul Paul writes in in Philippians 1.6, he says, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a process. It's called sanctification. And that's what we're in the middle of as Christians. Salvation is complete. Salvation is certain. And because of God's patient, loving, relational heart, sanctification is not complete. The faith that we have been given is a relationship that is meant to grow for the rest of our lives and for all eternity. Right? Even as Christians, we live with doubt. We get distracted. We're still sinners. We struggle to trust. We forget, and we need to be reminded. But in saying that, of course, you know that remembrance isn't simply remembering that God exists. Right? Usually, our problem is not an intellectual problem of knowledge that we lack in these moments. So many of us get this wrong, which is why we have a hard time being reminded of things. Right? We, we often make it hard for people to remind us of basic truths of the gospel. When we're reminded of them, we say, yeah, yeah, I know that. But the thing is, the problem is not that you don't know it up here. You don't know, the problem is not that you don't know that God told you that he's with you and that he loves you. The problem is that you don't know it in here. You see, I, I know that my wife loves me, right? but I am not done with my wife telling me that she loves me. right? <coughs> I am never going to get tired of her telling me that she loves me because often if I'm honest my heart needs the reminder. Of course I know she loves me. Why else does she smile when she looks at me? Why else does she laugh at my jokes? Of course. Of course I don't forget in my mind that she loves me, but I need her to remind me that she does. When she tells me that she'll be thinking of me when we're not together, that's not reassurance because I think that she's going to forget my existence. <laughs> I don't think that she's going to forget my existence. It's reassuring because it means the world to me to know that even when I'm not with her that she's thinking of me like I'm thinking of her. Right when we forget when we need to be reminded it's not because um, you know it's it's not because we have actual literal amnesia that we forget the fact. It's because we need to be reminded in our hearts that things these things are true. And the same is true with God. Storms come and we need to be reminded We don't totally forget everything, but because we're finite beings, we can only think one thing at a time. You can't serve two masters. And sometimes things draw our eyes from God, causing us to fear, causing us to sink. And every time this happens, when we cry out to God, he is there to take hold of us, to look us in the eye, asking, why did you ever doubt? In this text, in this story, this is the point that digs deep into the heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ Peter cried out in his doubt to a living Savior, and that living Savior, whose eyes were already fixed on him, reached out and extended grace in his time of need. Did he check to make sure Peter's faith was strong? No. Did he do do an inventory of everything that Peter had done in his life? No. He reaches out immediately, and only afterwards does he give a gentle rebuke in the form of a rhetorical question to point to Peter everything that has been made available to him. I am with you. It's beautiful. We can't stop there. The last thing that I want to say um, as we close, there's one last very important question. Uh, Because if I stop there, the question that we're left with is, hang on, this is all great, right? But Peter was right there with Jesus. (laughs) Peter was face-to-face with Jesus, physically right next to him. What about us? Jesus is not here in body anymore. What does this kind of thing look like to us? How is Jesus with us today as literally as he was back then? And I want to talk about this for just a moment. This is where the rubber really kind of meets the road. This is how we jump out of the boat with Jesus' disciples and get to February 2017. Track track with me now. Jesus' reassurance for his disciples was that he was to be with them, right? But he wasn't always going to be with them in body, was he? No, he was getting ready to give his life to pay for the sins of the world. And sure enough, just a short time after this, Jesus was betrayed. He was handed over to the Roman authorities and he was killed by being hung on a cross and crucified. Um, Jesus died for us. He really did. He was placed in the tomb. He really was. And then this is the crux of the gospel story. Three days later, what happened? Jesus rose from the dead. He really did. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that this is huge. 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. This sermon was pointless. Our faith is pointless. If Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But... When we look at the rest of the New Testament, when we look at the history of the church, we see a broken people of God. We see an imperfect church whose existence, growth, and spiritual power is inexplicable outside the power of the risen Christ indwelling it. Where does this power come from, though? Because after, his, after he rose again, Jesus appeared to his disciples, but then he rose into heaven, and now he's seated with God at the right hand of the Father. How is he with us? Do me a favor. Turn with me to John 14. This is, this is where we're going to close. I want you to, I'm sorry, I didn't look at the page number. Um, John is a couple of books after this, so flip to your right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John 14. Man, and I hope you sit in John 14 this week, maybe for the rest of your lives. Um, This is incredible. John 14, beginning in verse 15, how is Jesus with us? This is what Jesus says. Jesus knows he's about to hand over his life and he says this, beginning in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Keep reading, this is, get this. I will not, Jesus is saying this to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And skip down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Pause. How do we know that the words that we read are actually Jesus' words? How can we be confident that we read the Bible and know that we are reading the very word of God? It's because of this promise that Jesus made. The Holy Spirit will bring to your memory, bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And then verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Stop there. (laughs) Jesus promises that he'd be with us to the end of the age, and he tells us how He he promised that he'd be with us in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is with us in every single Christian, right? when the storms of life come, which they will, we know that we can call out to him and he is right there. He is not far off. He is not standing across the lake saying to us, well, if you'd just drawn closer to me, then you would have hope. No, Jesus is right there in the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Take heart, brothers and sisters. God is with you and you are with God. Because listen, God does not promise intellectual certainty. God promises the certainty of our salvation, of the finished work of Christ, but he doesn't promise that we will never intellectually or emotionally waver from that. Find me a passage in the Bible that promises intellectual certainty, that promises freedom from doubt, and I'll sit down right now. It's not in there. In fact, I could quote to you a couple of verses that indicate otherwise. But here's the thing. I thank God for this truth because I don't know everything. New information usually rocks my foundations. I ask anyone who knows me. Right, I learn something new, and then I think it out loud. It drives people nuts. But the thing is, God doesn't promise certainty. What does he promise? Verse 27. Certainty I will leave with you? No. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And let me read this for you. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. You, pro- you might have heard it before. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything. Does it say rebuke those who are anxious? No. Does it say repent of your anxiety? No. Anxiety is not a sin. Anxiety is a temptation. It's not celebrated in the Bible, but it's not a sin, and it certainly is a reality of life. In the face of anxiety, Christ offers peace. In the face of uncertainty, Christ offers peace. That's what we get offered to us. That's what we extend to one another. That's what we extend to people who don't know Jesus. We don't bring a harsh, distant, frustrated God who doesn't have patience for doubts and questions to the world. We bring a peaceful, patient, loving God who pours out his grace in our time of need. God invited us into a relationship with him. And we have this relationship now because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. God is welcoming us to be near to him, to be intimate with him, to have singularity of focus. And he is there in our time of need. Take heart. I am. Be not afraid. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for, thank you for your word and for the truth that we don't have to have things figured out. So often we say that it's kind of like a cliche phrase, Lord. You know, ah, I'm so glad I don't have to have it figured out, but really, Lord, I am so glad that I don't have to have it figured out, that I can stop trying to be certain, that you welcome my questions, you welcome my investigations, you want me to, to learn about you and work through the things that are true about you and to keep learning, even if what I learn is scary. Lord, thank you most of all for the presence of your Holy Spirit, for the gift of relationship with you, and I ask that you would glorify yourself in my heart and in all of our hearts as we go from this place, seeking to bring the true message of a gracious Savior to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.